Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. Our guest this week is the Dean of Southern California Literary Culture, perhaps the Dean of American Literary Culture, on the radio at least, the bookworm himself, KCRW's Michael Silverblatt, has come into the office. Joining me today are, as usual, my co-hosts, Lori Weiner and Tom Lutz. Hey, guys. Hey. Seth, hey, listen, it's not really an hour, right? It's a half hour, Tom. It feels like an hour to the listener. But so. as we like to say, we are aspirational. Okay. All right. I just wanted to clear that up. Can we pay a writer to write a new joke? I think that this time it actually is an hour, isn't it? Well, I think we are going to have an hour of uh, Michael Silkblad talk that will be split into two shows, and our listener is going to be... Enlightened. Absorbing the first <laughs> half hour right about now. Do you have fun on your interview show? The Lannans used to choose the subjects for the interviews, and I had no say in the matter. And Michael, could you contextualize the Lannans for the people listening? The Lannans are an arts foundation who, among other wonderful things, are the sponsors of the show Bookworm. And they did a reading series in Los Angeles, and they told me, you'll be interviewing Doris Lessing. Now, you see... I never read Doris Lessing. The people who were in charge of reputation in those days, who I would say included Irving Howe and Alfred Kazin, made it seem as if the author of The Golden Notebook was insane, was not worthy to enter the great house of the novel, the great mansion. <laughs> and they chose things to quote, that convinced me, and I'd never read her. Now, I don't think it's responsible for an interviewer to talk to a writer without reading as much of the work as possible, preferably all of it. And if there's anything that's true now, most interviewers are not given the time to prepare. Going to see a movie takes an hour and a half. Listening to a record, 45 minutes, 50. But the book... The book goes unread. One time, Charlie Rose picked up a book, wagged it in the air at Harold Bloom, and said, So, Harold, what is this about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a professional at work. Yeah. It's kind of the way we run things here. I don't want that happening on my show. So if it sounds stiff, it's because I think that my guest is really, in the deepest way, unknown to the listener, really. I think that what they're hearing is the sound of a voice, the author's voice, talking to someone finally who's really read the work. Well, one of the things that you said to uh, Colin Marshall in an interview that you did with our friend Colin um, was that you wanted the listener to feel like they were eavesdropping on a conversation, which, yeah, is, a, which in, is an interesting model. In the public mm -hmm. show... Mm -hmm. I'm asking what all the people, when I said to the audience there at Doris Lessing, I want to apologize to you. 
I know that many of you feel that I am being given a privilege that you would perhaps give parts of your body for. And I'm very embarrassed that I believed the things the men had to say about her. They were wrong. They were simply wrong. For them, she was writing science fiction. For me, the marriage of Zones 3, 4, and 5 is the best writing on divorce since Milton. It's extraordinary writing, and so is the Golden Notebook. There is a character in that book who's going crazy, and like real manipulators of power, the critics quoted the insane character out of context, Ah. making it sound as if the book was unreadable, ungrammatical, unthinkable, when in fact what was being tracked was the loss of mentation. In the studio, one-on-one, I'm asking my questions. They're the questions I want to hear the answers to. They're often very eccentric because they have to do with my interpretations of the books, which seem rarely to be the interpretations of literary critics. What happens when your interpretation of a book diverges from what the author himself or herself thinks about the book? The author often (laughs) is not used to me. (laughs) If I go too far off, the author's mouth opens. (laughs) (laughs) You can't hear that on the air. (laughs) And they say... That's brilliant. I never thought of that. And what they mean is, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, there'll be a guest like David Foster Wallace. I said something about fractals. Mm -hmm. I said, well, the first chapter begins, and the second chapter begins with the first chapter and adds. The third chapter combines chapters one and two and subtracts, but the fourth chapter takes the subtracted material, and you're building a spiral out of it. And then David very quietly said, they told me you were a good reader. And he said, that is Sierpinski's gasket which he describes as being like a pyramid on acid. It's an incredible figure that for the longest time only a computer could generate. It's one of those. And he Um, said that he had a picture of it on his wall. On his wall, in his bedroom as a child, and that he wanted to write a book in that shape. And, you know, of course sitting there... I want to go, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right! (laughs) But instead, see, a moment like that has to be followed up. A good chess move has to be followed by another good move. I said something else smart, and David said, under his breath, would you adopt me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a great moment. Yeah, Yeah. and you know, to me, for the first time when I was talking to David, finally someone really worthy of comparison to Pinchon and John Barth and the really great writers that I admire. There aren't many people. Most people can't write that kind of novel. They may admire it, 
but they're not good enough to write it. Well, you've also said that for you, the books hold mysteries, and you're interested in solving the, the, secrets. Mis- the secrets and the mysteries of a book. And an author like David Foster Wallace, of course, is perfect for that kind of reading. Well, what happened was one day I woke up, and I'm a person very interested in justice. If I'm going to be in a city like Los Angeles, and I... I'm going to be doing one of maybe two book shows. Uh, Wanda Coleman used to have mm-hmm. one with her husband. Right. It's not fair for me to be trying to do these books that are difficult for most people and that have lost cultural purchase. Those were books of the 60s and 70s, Nabokov, Borges, Beckett, Different things go on in literature in different years, in different decades. And it seemed to me to be wrong. And I started to say the thing that enrages people most. I got the idea that as long as I continued to just like one kind of book, I wasn't a scholar of that kind of book. I was a fan, Uh and it was no different than being a fan of science fiction or a fan of thrillers. And I started to say, I owe it to my listeners to read a wider variety of books and that a good critic, and I don't consider myself to be a critic, I'm an interviewer, you need a wide spectrum and a willingness to go outside your turf. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and we are talking to Michael Silverblatt on KPFK 90.7 FM. Michael, how much do you factor in the personal life of the writer when you're preparing for an interview? Because I know you're very, very rigorous about the work. How, How big a factor is that? I think the work is the personal life. I don't think there's much difference. I've never felt that. While it is true that those writers I liked, like Nabokov and John Barth and Donald Barthelme, and going back, T.S. Eliot and Joyce, believed in impersonality, their impersonality was the most personal impersonality that ever existed on the earth. We are always revealing ourselves at every moment. I believe I reveal myself when I sneeze and I don't have a tissue with me. That's the kind of person I am. You may be revolted. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get over it. Michael, are there not uh, writers, good writers, who are no good at interpreting or not so good at interpreting their own work? Yes. And they tell me usually at the beginning of the interview that they really hate talking about their work. Mm. The most famous of that kind is Joy Williams. But I find that those writers like Joy will love talking about the writers she loves. So if you talk to her about Jane Bowles, about Franz Kafka, you'll get a world of information about the kind of literature she writes. And then once she feels that you're in agreement about the crucial books, she'll talk about her own. She no longer feels alien. Um, I think that the interviewer has a debt to pay to the writer 
for all sorts of neglect, for misunderstanding. Now, when he wrote for Newsweek, David Gates was not yet a novelist, but he had written that one of the most pernicious influences in American writing was Joy Williams, who wrote with a facile negativity and a kind of zombie anarchism that was not earned. Yikes. Uh, who did he think he was? And look at his writing now. But, um, but you know, it was one of those things. Sure. So I felt, when talking to Joy, that I was apologizing for the David Gateses of this world. Similarly, Joy was nominated for an L.A. Times Book Award. She came for it, and she didn't win. A writer whose first novel, I'm forgetting his name, won the award. And Joy had never won an award, and she's a major American writer. And I went up to the guy, I was kidding, I said, you want to be noble, you want to be elegant, you want to be profound, you want to be resonant, you want to be beautiful, give Joy your prize. That's like you were the Kanye West of the Book Awards. I was being <laughs> indignant for Joy, who wouldn't have come if it weren't obvious to her that she was going to win the award. And she wanted to be a literary person as opposed to those people who don't come to pick up their awards. She wanted to be there. It was going to be her first. And this guy, he didn't understand. He was too young to understand that a malfeasance had been perpetrated and that if the judges had been stupid enough to do this in this way... It's the way it was done, not what was done. Give the award to the person you think deserves it, but don't invite a venerated, unawarded, unrecognized writer to sit and watch a youngster who's never published before win your award. Don't do it. Michael, do you have an estimate of how many writers you have interviewed in your life? Just a rough count? I don't like to think about it. Um, it's 52 shows a year, one writer per show, and the show has been on for 25 years. I didn't know there was going to be any math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't, you know, some of those writers have been on several times. Right. So let's just do it this way. Let's say that I've probably talked to more writers of literary fiction and poetry than anyone else in the world. Are writers innately different than non-writers? Over the course of what they have to do to be writers, the solitude that the job requires, and the fact that that solitude takes you outside the world. So the people who write to begin with because they feel like they don't understand the world, are then encouraged to spend time away from the world writing. And they have to write toward a knowledge of the world. This makes them very strange. You know, you can understand it easily if it's an outlandish writer, if it's a Donald Barthelme, or even a Flannery O'Connor. But when you talk about those writers who are describing a world that exists, I think in Anne Beattie, 
even a Jonathan Franzen, they're kind of astounding anomalies uh, because they get it right so much of the time, and yet they shouldn't be able to. What allows someone to know the thing that their job prevents them from knowing? <laughs> it's, it's a great, mysterious thing. You, you talk to writers and they say, I hate parties, and yet... Paula Fox, for instance, does the scariest parties you've ever seen. You understand that she hates them, but you have the feeling she's not staying home. She's there getting down every fiendish behavior, um, even though, and especially because it makes her cringe to watch people behaving socially. Yeah, we were having dinner last night with uh, a couple of writers, and um, he said that he hates parties, that he, he doesn't hate parties. He doesn't like parties. He's naturally a kind of a loner. He likes, he, he likes being in his room alone writing. And um, he's now with somebody who is much more social than he is, and he's trying to adapt. But for I think for a lot of writers, that idea that you get to hide away from the world in order to figure out what it is that you want to say so that you don't walk around every day of your life feeling with, with a faux pas feeling, which is the way I, I walk around. And I think that you have said yourself that you're easily wounded, uh, you said in an interview. And writers are, are often easily wounded people. And um, to stay out of the world is a way not to get wounded, isn't it? Yeah, and also I would say that to stay with a book in front of your eyes so that you don't have to see what's going on around you getting lost in a book so that you don't have to hear the horrible things that your parents may be saying to one another. I was told by these parents that I was only good when I was reading and when I was sleeping. <laughs> mm. I'm sorry, I don't... I d didn't mean to, it wasn't a, a that is funny laugh. It was just a I'm sorry laugh. <laughs> no, no, people gasp now, but this was the kind of things parents, parents were once not supposed to enhance the bad characteristics of their misbehaving children by praising them. <laughs> parents were to, meant to, you know, keep the child in his place. I mean, it wasn't quite children should be seen but not heard. That was a previous generation. But it was, you know, if your child likes to read and likes to sleep. And there were two things that I wanted to do. I did in my life. I wanted to read, and no one seemed to want me to want to pay me for it. And I wanted to stay in bed awake with my eyes closed. And people really didn't want to pay me for that. <laughs> so I didn't think that there was anything I'd ever be able to do in the world. And neither did my parents. So like a wounded child, I'd go home and say, what am I going to do with my life? And my parents would say, yeah, what are you going to do with your life? Michael, you better start snapping to you. There's a whole world and you don't know how to be in it. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and we are talking to Michael Silverblatt on KPFK 90.7 FM.
Michael, let's stay in childhood for a moment. What was, I'm trying to imagine your literary taste, say as a 13 year old. What were you reading then in eighth and ninth grade? I loved literary fantasy. That is to say, E. Nesbitt, C.S. Lewis. Uh, there was a peculiar writer named Edward Eager. I read all, is it 13 or 14, of the original L. Frank Baum Oz books. I was crazy about them. Then the woman, Astrid Lindgren, who wrote Pippi Longstocking, sure also wrote these books that were more about orphan boys. There was one called Mio, My Son, and I identified with orphans. <laughs> Wishful thinking. It was. It was. You know, other people had the family romance. I was a, adopted. I, I thought it was much worse. I, I thought I was metaphysically an orphan. And I would find often those very special books, often about girls, The Secret Garden, The Little Princess, uh, are about orphaned figures whose orphanhood is sort of like Kipling's. Kipling's parents are often India, leaving him with purportedly responsible foster parents who make him wear a sign on his back, they taped it to his back saying, liar. Before I had any ideas of my own sexuality, I identified with lost girls and boys. Lost was the center. And that that at the time, oh, there's so many confusions here, but they're all accurate. At the time... Odd children were identified with fairies. It might be gay, but they would call you fairy. And I would be delighted, and I'd really want to say, no, leprechaun, <laughs> because I was very taken with a book called The Crock of Gold, which had leprechauns in it, and then that book had been the inspiration for the leprechaun in the musical Finian's Rainbow, oh, yeah. which my parents took me to see when I was little. And when I learned that the person who'd written that leprechaun had also written the lion's song in The, um, Wizard, of the Wizard of Oz, uh, I started writing him fan letters, E.Y. Harburg, mm -hmm. and he invited me to his house. And there, again... That problem, it always cropped up. He taught me the difference between masculine and feminine rhymes. And ah. I thought, wow. Um, you know, in ah. retrospect, I see my confusion <laughs> as being entire and everywhere found, mm. you know. Um, um, do you still love musicals? I love musicals. I'm embarrassed by them mostly. Again. <laughs> Why embarrassed? They are not as good as they once were. Understand that there was a momentary time where the songs that were in musicals were also the most popular songs in America. An Irving Berlin song did not just appear in the show or the movie it was written for. 
It was played by the big bands. If in the movie Fred Astaire sang the song, you were likely to hear a cover of it by Bing Crosby. You kept hearing these songs over and over on the radio. Even now, my dear mother is losing her memory. She doesn't remember what my father was like. But on the phone, I'll start to sing a song from a musical of her time, and the words are there for her. It was a way of life. It was a beautiful way of life. It was terrifically witty. Um, Ogden Nash wrote the words to the musical One Touch of Venus. He wrote it with Kurt Vile and that lovely love song, Speak Low When You Speak Love. These songs were written by very special people. I say that the discovery E.Y. Harburg had when he said, we hear he is a whiz of a whiz, if ever a whiz there was, if ever, oh, ever the whiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. It's like the discovery of nuclear fission. (laughs) (laughs) And then, get this, he was a serious man. 30 years later, for an animated film, still starring Judy Garland, called Gay Perry, still with the writing partner Harold Arland, he writes a song. Rose is red, violet's blue, the rhyme is old, but love is new. When love is new, the world is young, and that is why the spring has sprung. The spring has sprung, now listen, for hers and his, and that is why the sap has riz. The bees all buzz, and roses is where roses never was. He never got tired of that fricative Z sound. Mm. But then it got embarrassing, because musicals, were so identified with homosexuals from New York City because of chorus boys, because of the whole theater scene, because it was safe to be flamboyant if you were singing and dancing around in leotards. Um, And then when gay men started to go to the gym... We stopped liking. <laughs> it, it became, <laughs> it became a little bit change. embarrassing uh. to like musicals. But I still did because as far as I'm concerned, I love anyone I ever loved and I love any book I ever loved and I love the songs I used to love. There are always new things. Mm-hmm. And the problem is staying current because, you know, it starts to get a little bit sad when all the songs you know, no one you know can sing with you except your demented mother. Because <laughs> you want to sing together. There's nothing better than singing together. For Lori Weiner and Tom Lutz, my name is Seth Greenland, and you have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by a reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. I would like to thank Michael Silverblatt for appearing on our show, our producer and moral center, Jerry Gorin, as always, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation, who keep us metaphorically afloat. Please be sure to tune in again when we air the second part of our interview with the bookworm, Michael Silverblatt.
While the gods of love look down and laugh at what romantic fools we mortals be. And now, I know my love was not for you. And so I'll take it back with a sigh. Perfidious one, goodbye.